0: Hello, and welcome to The Right Side of History, a show dedicated to exploring current events through a historical lens and busting left-wing myths about figures and events of America's past. I'm Jarrett Stepman And I'm Fred Lucas. On this week's episode, we're going to dig into a little bit of important presidential history, especially in regard to political campaigns and the use of federal agencies in domestic politics. It's especially important as debate over impeachment and proper presidential behavior are so much discussed but little understood in the 24-hour news cycle.
1: Recently, during the House Judiciary impeachment hearing, Congressman Ken Buck raised a lot of issues about past presidential misconduct that sort of put what we are discussing in the current-day impeachment hearings into perspective. Let's hear that.
2: So um, let, me, let me go with a few examples and see if you agree with me. Uh, Lyndon Johnson directed the Central Intelligence Agency to place a spy in Barry Goldwater's campaign. That spy got advanced copies of speeches and other strategy, delivered that to the Johnson campaign. Would that be impeachable conduct, according to the uh, other uh, panelists? Oh, well, it
3: it sweeps pretty broadly, so I assume so.
2: How about when uh, uh, President Johnson uh, put a wiretap on uh, uh, Goldwater's campaign plane? Would that be for political benefit?
3: Well, I can't exclude anything under that definition.
2: Okay. Well, I'm going to go with a few other presidents. We'll we'll see where we go. Uh, Congressman Deutsch just uh, informed us that uh, FDR put country first. Now, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, when he was president, directed the IRS to conduct audits of his political enemies, namely uh, Huey Long, William Randolph Hearst, Hamilton Fish, Father Coughlin. Would that be an abuse of power for political benefit, according to the other panelists? Would that be impeachable conduct? I think it all would be subsumed into it. How about when President Kennedy directed his brother, Robert Kennedy, to deport one of his mistresses as an East German spy? Would that qualify as uh, impeachable conduct? Once again, I can't exclude it. And how about when he uh, directed the FBI to use wiretaps on congressional staffers who opposed his, him politically? Would that be impeachable conduct? It would seem to be falling within it. And let's go to Barack Obama. When Barack Obama uh, directed uh, uh, or, or made a finding that the Senate was um, in recess and appointed people to the National Labor Relations Board and lost 9-0, to zero Ruth Bader Ginsburg voted against the president on this issue. Would that be an abuse of power?
3: I'm afraid you'd have to direct it to others, but I I don't see any exclusions under their definition.
2: Okay, and how about when the president directed his national security advisor and the secretary of state to lie to the American people about whether the ambassador to Libya was murdered as a result of a video or was murdered as a result of a terrorist act, would that be an abuse of power for political benefit 17 days before the next election? Well,
3: not according to my definition, but the others will have to respond to their own.
2: Well, you've heard their definition. You can apply those facts to their definition. I have a hard
3: time excluding anything out
2: of... How about when Abraham Lincoln arrested uh, legislators in Maryland so that they wouldn't convene to secede from the union? And and Virginia already had seceded, so it would have placed Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, in the middle of uh, the the rebellion. Would that have been an abuse of power for political benefit? Well, it could be under that definition. And you mentioned George Washington a little while ago as perhaps having met the standard of impeachment for your other panelists. Um, In fact, let me ask you something, Professor Turley. Can you name a single president in the history of the United States, save President Harrison, who died 32 days after his inauguration, that would not have met the standard of impeachment for our friends here?
3: I would hope to God James Madison would escape. Um, Otherwise, a lifetime of academic work would be shredded. I, but, I, once again, I can't exclude many of these acts.
2: Isn't what you and I and many others are afraid of is that the standard that, that your friends to the right of you, uh, and, and not politically, but to the right of you sitting on there, uh, that your friends have, have decided that the, the bar is so low that when we have a Democrat president in office and a Republican House and a Republican Senate, we're going to be going through this whole uh, scenario again in a way that uh, really puts the country at risk. Well, when
3: when your graphic says in your ABCs that your B is betrayal of national interest, I would simply ask, do you really want that to be your standard?
2: Now, isn't the difference, Professor Turley, that some people live in an ivory tower and some people live in a swamp? And those of us that are in the swamp are doing our very best for the American people, but it's not pretty.
3: Actually, I live in an ivory tower in a swamp because I'm at GW, but um, and it's not so bad.
0: So we have brought on a guest, Dr. Lee Edwards, an esteemed historian and distinguished fellow in conservative thought at the B. Kenneth Simon Center for Principles and in Politics, Institute for Constitutional Government at the Heritage Foundation. Dr. Edwards has written over 25 books, mostly about history, with an emphasis on the Cold War and the conservative movement. And perhaps more importantly for this interview worked on the 1964 campaign to elect Senator Barry Goldwater president. Here's our interview.
1: All right, Lee, what we want to talk to you about is the LBJ abuse power here during a campaign using the CIA for his own political purposes, uh, going after his opponent that year, Barry Goldwater. What do you remember about that? Well, you
4: know, Fred, it was not enough for Mr. Johnson, President Johnson, to... Uh, abuse the power of the cia but he said well let's go ahead and abuse the power of the fbi as well so he used both of the two most national security conscious uh, organizations in america to pursue his goal and what was that it was a landslide but not just a landslide it was to be the mother of all landslides for two reasons number one he wanted to best the record of FDR, his great hero and model in 1936, and to produce a majority so that he could force through the great society. And that was for him, for Lyndon Baines Johnson to coin a phrase, extremism in the pursuit of victory was no vice for Lyndon Baines Johnson.
0: Yeah, that the really is amazing when you think about it. Given that you know he had such a a lead in the polls, it would seem like victory was very much assured. The kind of I mean, people talk about oh Nixon was paranoid, but I mean this is some real paranoia when you're using these these really unethical tools to go after your opponents.
4: He initiated what was called the anti campaign, and that anti campaign was run out of the White House. Talk about abuse wow. of political mm-hmm. power. It was right above the Oval Office. And uh, he brought in some of the major old political types. Uh, One of them was Daniel Patrick Moynihan, Mm -hmm. uh, later senator. Another was John Roach, later president of the ADA, Americans for Democratic Action, Mm. and others as well. And they put together an anti-campaign to bury, Barry Goldwater as deeply as they could. The CIA planted a spy in our campaign. Now, we did not know it at the time, but we suspected it, and I'll go into that in a second. And then that wasn't enough. That was not enough for Mr. Lyndon Baines Johnson, but it was to involve the FBI in bugging and not only the campaign headquarters, but our campaign plane <sighs> Wow. to our... Now we knew after, and I was a deputy director of public relations for the for the presidential campaign, and we knew something was going on because they would know what we were going to say or give a speech before before mm-hmm. we did. Practically, mm-hmm. um, we knew that uh, they could anticipate what uh, a particular speech was going to be, or what a particular initiative. One which comes to mind is we had put together a a wonderful foreign policy national security commission headed up by Vice President Nixon with generals and admirals and secretaries of state and so forth. Really impressive. We're going to announce, let's say, at 3 p.m. on such and such a day. At 2 p.m., Lyndon Baines Johnson and the White House announced their foreign oh, policy wow. national security commission wow. with all these distinguished people and just cut the ground out for money. Now, how could that possibly happen? And we began becoming so suspicious that we would not use the telephones in the national campaign headquarters, <laughs> but for really confidential calls would go outside, go into a phone booth and get the collection of quarters and make those calls to our operatives. Um, in the grassroots
0: you know that's that's really inc- remarkable it's almost reminds me of stories about you know the u.s embassy in moscow that the kind of lengths that they would go through to avoid all the bu- mm-hmm. of course there were bugs everywhere and there was i mean there was all kinds of stuff but it, it's pretty incredible to think that an american political campaign so somebody, somebody running for president had to take you had to take those kind of precautions because you thought that the commander-in-chief was using these agencies to spy on you i mean that's i mean that's really what you would call it right
4: uh, a decade later in hearings in the Senate, uh, mm-hmm. it came to light that, in fact, public – this is all public hearings – that the CIA did, in fact, plant a spy in our headquarters to provide those speeches in advance of when they were beginning, try to get his schedule, travel schedule and things like that. And Bill Colby said, yes, it's true. The, the CIA mm-hmm. was used. Now, the FBI story was, frankly, was some uh, journalism that I'd engaged in. Uh, It seemed to me that uh, it was beyond just the CIA. And so I interviewed for my biography of Barry Goldwater some years later, a gentleman named Robert Martian, who was the assistant attorney general, came into the office in 70 or 71, had a long meeting with the director of the FBI, and they brought up this question of electronic surveillance.
2: Hmm.
4: Oh, well, uh, Mr. Director asked uh, Mr. Martian, did, uh, I, you know, we had these suspicions in 1964 because Marty was in the campaign. Right. Said, we had these suspicions. Was there any electronic surveillance? Said, oh, yes, said Mr. Hoover. We bugged the campaign plane. <laughs> and so Marty and taken back aghast, said, why? And here was this classic answer from Mr. Hoover, quote, you do what the president tells you to do.
1: Certainly many things are said about J. Edgar Hoover, uh, but the positive side of it is he was very much an anti-communist. Goldwater was an anti-communist and strong conservative, obviously. Uh, it would seem that he would not have an interest in doing this other than just following orders.
4: Well, that was confirmed in this sense. And, and Bob Marty in talk with the number two man in the bureau was a man named William Sullivan, who was a conservative, very pro-Goldwater. We mm-hmm. we, we knew that. And he confirmed that there had been this electronic surveillance and he was just so upset about it and saying, "No we shouldn't be doing that there's no rationale for it." And at the bottom line, everybody knew that Barry Goldwater, because of the polls, was was very unlikely to win. But Johnson was obsessed with this idea of running up the greatest landslide just for his own political vision. And place in history.
0: It's amazing, you know, talk about history. I think a lot of Americans don't know some of these stories. You know, you hear a lot of news reports today. And I think, you know, our window of what we know is sometimes very small, especially when it comes to politics and and having these stories about, you know, things like this that have gone on before in in American presidential history. Of course, you you bring that wealth of knowledge uh, to this to this discussion. Uh, But it's very obviously these things had consequences too. certainly the, the Lyndon Johnson presidency had enormous consequences. I mean, after his victory, I mean, what happened there after some of the biggest moments in American history? We talk of the Vietnam War. We talk the Great Society. Of course, Heritage just recently came out with a book, The Not-So-Great Society, which I think really lays down some of the problems of his Great Society programs. But I mean, he really did go on to have a consequential presidency, you know, in spite of all these things that he did uh, that, I mean, caused a lot of chaos to this country. Is that correct?
4: Well, I think it is true. And for me, it is the Vietnam War. And some 58,000 Americans died in that war. We asked uh, Senator Goldwater, OK, if you're, if you're elected, what will you do? Mm-hmm. And he said, well, here is my, going to be my policy in the unlikely event that I am elected president. Mm-hmm. I will call in the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I will say to them, gentlemen, and Goldwater was a two-star uh, general had been served in World War Two, was a very distinguished gentleman, uh, knew the military, knew the the command structure there and so forth. And he said to the joint he would say to the joint chiefs of staff, gentlemen, you have one year to solve this conflict. And one year you may use air power, you may use sea power. You may not invade the, the north of Vietnam. We're not going to have hmm. our boys get involved in a land war in um, in Asia and particularly <laughs> hmm. in in Vietnam. But anything else but at the end of one year, if the conflict is still going on and there is no prospect in sight for bringing an end to it, we're going to pull out.
0: It's amazing oh, that Johnson during that campaign portrayed Goldwater as this, this terrible warmonger <laughs> You had, of course, that infamous ad that really one of the – I think one of the dirtier ads in campaign history saying basically – basically saying that Goldwater was going to promote nuclear war. And yet following that, we had the terrible tragedy of Vietnam and so many American lives lost uh, for the struggle and and that really – I mean upended Johnson's presidency and left, I think, a deep – stay on this country. I, I think a lot of Americans, I think America still in some ways recovering from from that terrible struggle and the larger struggle against uh, international communism. Uh, so it is quite amazing. Uh, and and I, I think it's interesting, especially looking back and, you know, you have experience having worked on the Goldwater campaign. There are a lot of, you know, especially younger Americans in my generation, you know, Goldwater is just this kind of towering figure in the history of conservatism and especially. You know, what was it like working for that campaign at that time? I mean, Goldwater was such a a different character in American politics. Really, you know, you could say a precursor to Ronald Reagan, the things that came after. But I mean, it didn't look so good for conservatives at the time when he got blown out. Can you can you kind of talk about that?
4: Well, that's true. I mean, dur- during the uh, campaign, uh, w- was one of my tasks was to keep the morale up. And that was not easy. <laughs> given the polls, which showed us getting twenty, twenty-five percent. Finally got into the thirties, and finally wound up with thirty-seven point five percent, which is not bad uh, over the where we started out. He Barry Goldwater was somebody out of the. He was the Marlboro man. For our younger people probably don't know who that is, but he <laughs> uh, he was the Clint Eastwood of the of the day. He was rugged. He was tough. He was handsome. He was charismatic. He was a straight talker did not believe in equivocating. He did not believe in trying to refine a particular answer, but to tell it like it is. So therefore he would go uh, to a city in Florida, for example, and say, you know, social security is actuarially unsound. (laughs) (laughs) um, He would go out to um, South Dakota in the great farm fest that would be held out there of a couple hundred thousand people And he would look out at these 200,000 people and he'd say, you know, we've got to cut back on farm subsidies. (laughs) I mean, he would refuse, and he even made one speech, I did not write it, I wrote some of his speeches, but not that that one. And he'd say, look out at the audience, particularly, I said, I don't want your vote, (laughs) Uh. unless unless you agree with my positions, unless you say, you know... Strictly limited government. I did not come to Washington, D.C. to pass laws but to repeal them. I mean, this was something that would inspire young conservatives like me to say, yes, this is our guy. And to think that he would not actually – Jared, I'll say this, and this is part of the record. He would not have declared his candidacy if it were not for young conservatives Mm -hmm. saying, you must raise that standard. You must provide a conservative uh, answer and not a liberal echo. Uh, And so he said, as a matter of fact, in his opening remarks in which he declared his candidacy, I'm only doing this because I know the outcome is not so certain. I'm only doing this because so many conservatives, particularly young conservatives, have come to me and asked me to run. That's a man of such commitment, somebody out of out of West Point duty honor, country. I mean, that's Barry Goldwater. Duty, honor, country.
0: It, it, very inspirational and it certainly inspired me as a, as a young conservative reading a lot of his, of course, conscience of a conservative when I was in college, inspired me to kind of go the route I did. So, obviously, he's bringing inspiration to generations that, you know, he didn't even really know, uh, years and decades, and I mean, hopefully, uh, you know, the generations that come thereafter, uh, which is a, an incredible legacy, despite political defeat at a presidential election that he had little chance of winning, to leave that kind of mark on American history is more than even, I think, to a certain extent, than many presidents have had, uh, when you consider that long arc of what he has done and what he has left and the many generations that have come thereafter, really Incredible legacy,
1: yeah, and 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 he also came right after William F. Buckley had started National Review, basically, and and that preceded Ronald Reagan, who had that ma- made that major speech during the campaign two years ahead of being elected governor of California. So that sort of launched the Reagan movement.
4: I think you're right, and if I can just mentioning the the famous Reagan speech, of Time for Choosing," um, the campaign leaders for us for Goldwater, I'm talking about. We're not very enthusiastic about that speech. As a matter of fact, they tried to kill it.
0: Wow. <laughs> they tried to
4: substitute it uh, with another uh, program, it was a half-hour program in those days that um, had been shot. And it came down to almost the very last in which uh, a group of people out in California had put up the money to run it on on national television one time. And they were still resisting it, Uh, Bill Baruti, frankly, the campaign manager, unofficial, and others as well. And finally they said, well, this only can be resolved by Barry Goldwater, who had not seen or heard the speech. So they played it for him, just the audio, not the actual film. Played it for him. He listened to it and said, well, what the hell's wrong with that? Run it. And so Barry Goldwater personally... Approved a time for choosing and helped to make history.
0: Wow. going back to we were talking about the wiretapping and the surveillance. What did what did Goldwater think of these things? Obviously, these things came <laughs> to his campaign. He might not have been aware of all of them. Was he worried about this? Was <laughs> he focused on the campaign, his ideas? Was he less concerned? Was he concerned of the fact that U.S. government was essentially using agencies to spy on a on a presidential campaign?
4: It really is part of Goldwater's feelings that he did not want to run. And one of the reasons why he didn't want to run, aside from the fact that he, for the chances of his winning would be very, very slight indeed, but because he was running against Lyndon Baines Johnson, hmm. whom he detested, whom he did not trust, whom he had seen in action in the U.S. Senate all during the 1950s. And as a matter of fact, he said, you know, I don't want to run against that guy and get down into the The pit with him, except he didn't use the word pit. Um, (laughs) He said, "I know that he will resort to any tactic, any trick that he possibly can to achieve victory." But when he heard about the the wiretapping, he said, "I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised." So let's let's keep on going. Let's keep on campaigning. Keep on putting out these ideas. That we have of trying to do away with as much government as possible, trying to raise up free enterprise and particularly with regard to the Cold War, winning it, Hmm. not just playing for a tie, but winning it. That was essential to Barry Barry Goldwater's understanding of what a presidency should do and ought to do. And he was furious, um, but again, not surprised when Johnson was going around and saying things like, I'm not going to send American boys to fight in an Asian war. We knew subsequently, as a matter of fact, Barry Goldwater knew already because he had contacts in the Pentagon who told him, what, that plans were already being made to send American troops to Vietnam. And here was our president going from place to place and saying, you know, I'm not going to send American boys to fight in an Asian war. He was dead out, flat out lying.
1: Wow. It's um the one, one interesting thing about nineteen sixty four, which of course ended up being a landslide, um LBJ took these extraordinary actions even though that he was headed for a landslide. Eight years later we saw something similar. Of course, that was all found out instantaneously almost, um as as opposed to Johnson's actions, which were found out a decade later. Nixon went down. Um how 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 would you compare what Johnson did to what Nixon did? And and Watergate, and, and and the you know the expansive Watergate scandal.
4: Well, I yeah. think certainly we can say that as we we look back now on on Watergate, it was at the time I'm not going to say that it was a third rate burglary, but it did not seem that big mm-hmm. until we realized again that the president was lying to us, and it seems to me that is the big difference that Nixon's uh, lies, uh, Nixon's cover up were all public were all made public and forced action to be taken, corrective action to be taken against him to make him pay for that, you know. Whereas what Johnson did was all secret. Nobody <laughs> wow. knew it. I mean, we knew it. I mean, instinctively knew it, and we never were able to, to prove it. But we knew this was going on. Um, and so but it was also sort of kept down. Now, why, you might ask, why would Barry Goldwater not go public with that? I th- the answer is that he did not do it because it would have hurt the country. We're in the middle of a Cold War. We're in the middle of the negotiations around the world. And who knew what would, might happen to those negotiations, what might happen to the conduct of the Cold War, if he went public with that kind of a of a scandal that mm-hmm. would do irreparable harm to the presidency, to the government, to the United States. And Barry Goler wouldn't have that. Example of that, hmm. his top aide uh, was, uh, was was caught, frankly, in Flagrento delecto in the YMCA, engaged in an act with another gentleman, another man. The campaign went to Barry Goldwater and said, here it is. Let's, let's use this. Let's use this to show just how corrupt Washington is, how corrupt the Johnson administration is. And he said, you're not going to do that. He forbade us to do it because he said, I know Walter Jenkins, the, the man in question, he's a good man and I don't want to destroy him with this kind of a story. Oh. And also it's not going to do our country any good by going public with this. So for him to put aside political gain – and a political goal and victory or, or a better standing was not as important to him as protecting the reputation of that one individual and the reputation of the, of the country.
0: That, that is really an amazing thing. And, and it does put it into perspective when you think of the challenges the U.S. was facing at the time. Obviously, using agencies against American citizens, political candidates is obviously incredibly worrying. But we were also in a, a deep You know, twilight struggle against the the, the Soviet Union at this time and the the work of the CIA and the FBI were incredibly important, I think, to the country, which there were uh, incredible threats. And there was an ideology that was faced against freedom, essentially. And, you know, those were some of the tools that were at disposal for good things but unfortunately used for bad things by bad characters uh, is what it sounds. And that's an amazing part of Goldwater's – that's a very rare uh, thing, especially when you think of a politician to – Put country first. I mean, as sad as that may sound, but to put country first truly over over winning, over things like this – you know, Ultimately, you hope these things do more for the generations of Americans that come because that is kind of what we're committed to as a country. These are the right things to do. It's not just about power. It's not just about winning. It's about being a good country and doing the right thing at the end of the day. And you know, hopefully our country really succeeded because of that generations later after Goldwater was gone, that that legacy, that there will be more Americans who make this decision to go with country first.
4: I think also it needs to be said that the Goldwater example – was something that Ronald Reagan observed and followed and emulated as much as possible. Uh, when he won the governorship of California for the first time, I picked up the phone and called Phoenix and talked to to Senator Goldwater. And he said, Barry, I just want you to know how much uh, I appreciate all that you've done for this country. And I want you to know that all I'm trying to do, and if I've been successful here, is to do what you tried to do when running for the presidency. So they, there was very much a direct line, and Fred, you mentioned this as well, between Buckley, Goldwater, and Reagan, three great heroes, three great champions of freedom and liberty, and how fortunate we are as conservatives that we have those kinds of people to inspire us and to to emulate.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for your time in discussing these issues. Certainly now it's great to have the kind of historical perspective on history so that we see things beyond just the here and the now, the 24-hour news cycle. Thank you so much, Dr. Edwards, for bringing your perspective. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us on The Right Side of History. You can check out our work on the Ricochet Network, Apple Podcasts, and on other podcast services, as well as the Daily Signal website. You can also check out my Twitter – at Jarrett Stepman,
1: and my Twitter, at Fred W H. See you next time.
4: You've been listening to The Right Side of History, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Jarrett Stepman and Fred Lucas. Sound design by Lauren Evans, the Leah Rampersad, and Mark Guiney. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.